Welcome to episode 12 of Slantcast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolf, and I'm Slant's publisher and editor. Thanks for joining us. On this episode, we have a very special presentation in support of Slant's newest release, Old Songs, by Olga Sedikova, translated by Martha M.F. Kelly. Of necessity, this episode of Slantcast takes somewhat different form compared to our recent live book launch events, given the technical and logistical challenges required by having four participants from time zones ranging from Seattle to Moscow, we decided to pre-record this conversation. The result, I'm happy to say, is a truly enlightening and at times even deeply moving conversation. But as we begin, we should ask, what is this book about and who is its author? Let's begin with the dust jacket copy. Olga Sedikova is a writer of global significance. The publishing of this collection is a welcome stage in the reception of her exceptional genius in the West. So writes theologian, poet, and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, in his foreword to this translation of old songs. Born in 1949 in Moscow, Olga Sedikova emerged as a leading writer of the late Soviet period. Since 2014, she has been an outspoken critic of Russia's war on Ukraine. Her writing bears witness to the values of generosity, attention, and nonviolence. The poems in old songs construct a world shaped by these values, forming a lyric sequence infused with folk wisdom and anchored in moral courage. It is a world brought into being by song, the kind passed down over cradles and on walks through the garden. These poems find their way into your memory and accompany you on your way. Sedekova is not only one of Russia's most revered contemporary poets, but also a scholar and essayist. Often compared to figures such as Cheswav Miwosh, she has, with this volume, according to Rowan Williams, succeeded in conveying the sense of a forgotten directness of perception and relation. Not a lot of simplicity exactly, but a larger and more human world. In these exceptionally fine translations, Martha Kelly has achieved her aim of conveying a sense of words worn down as smooth as a river rock. One hears English words anew here, as well as the musical beauty and glorious wisdom of Sedekova's poetry. To have old songs in this new version is a gift, so says Rowan Williams. And it's that gift that will be celebrated and elucidated in today's conversation. Remember that you can go to Slant's website to find a page dedicated to old songs where you will see several options for ordering the book. And now to introduce our featured author along with her interlocutors. Olga Sedekova is one of Russia's most revered poets. Born in 1949, she emerged as a writer in the late Soviet underground, and for decades her poetry was published only in Samizdat form. 
Several volumes were published in after 1991, culminating in a four-volume collected works in 2010. In recent decades, she has primarily published translations, essays, and cultural criticism, reflecting her growing importance as a public figure and a voice of conscience in the Putin era. She has spoken out publicly against the war in Ukraine since 2014. Over the decades, Sedekova has received many prominent awards, among them Russians, Russia's Andrei Belli Prize, the European Prize in Poetry, and Italy's Dante Alighieri Prize. Sedekova's poetry draws most obviously on the modernist tradition broadly conceived, with its embrace of complex metaphor, ellipsis, and formal experimentation. She also draws notably on classic Russian poetic forms and on European traditions of metaphysical poetry, even as her own poetry betrays a radical openness more in line with late modern modes. Stretching across four decades, her poems engage diverse modes, from adaptations of folk song and proverbs to odes, ekphrasis, and spiritual lyric. Sedekova's poetry reflects what Osip Mandelstam called a longing for world culture. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, recently retired as Master of Magdalen College, University of Cambridge. Among his recent books are The Edge of Words, The Tragic Imagination, Christ, the Heart of Creation, and Looking East in Winter. His collective, his collected poems were recently published by Carcanet Press. Martha M.F. Kelly is an associate professor of Russian studies in the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of Missouri. She is the author of Unorthodox Beauty, Russian Modernism and Its New Religious Aesthetics. Her translations and essays have appeared or are forthcoming in two lines, Los Angeles Review of Books, Michigan Quarterly, Poetry Daily, and LitHub. It is now my great honor and delight to share with you this book launch event for Old Songs. I'm so excited to be here with all three of you. And I'm I'm especially um, looking forward, uh, Olga, to hearing you and Rowan get to talk with one another, because I know that you've crossed each other's paths in various ways over the decades and been in the same rooms together and maybe even met briefly. But um you know, to me, the important part or the interesting part of this conversation is is y'all getting to encounter each other in this way. Um, so I'm I'm happy to step in. Um, and Olga knows I have a handful of questions in my back pocket, but but I I agree with um, Greg that you know, for me, I hope this will really just be the opportunity for a conversation, and there doesn't have to be a particular outcome. For an encounter, Stricha, the, that's this is Olga. This is one of your your beloved words is the encounter, the Stricha. Yes, <laughs> and I, I think about. Sorry, I, I'm getting. I'm so excited to be here with with y'all. Stop <laughs> talking in a minute, but um, you know, another word that I've been thinking about um, in regards to your work, Olga, is uh, interlocutor, sabisiednik, and that's mm. something that um, I think you understand and also seek out on a very profound level. So um, may this be a stricha, maybe it may, may it be um, a time for uh, Sabisiedniki. Yes. Indeed. 
indeed. I wonder whether, Martha, I could begin by picking up something which, Olga, you have written about in terms of poetry and space. You've written about how poetry brings distant things close to and pushes apparently close things further away. And listening, listening to that, thinking about that as um, a poetic philosophy, it seemed to me that that's something about language itself, not, not only poetry, that our gift of language is something which both brings us into the heart of what is strange and also slows down our response to what we think we know and what we think we perceive. One um, Iranian poet I was reading recently spoke of how poetry slows down the metabolism of language, that the rate at which we digest language. That's somehow connected with what you were saying. But that's, that's really just a, a way of beginning with one of the things I've appreciated so much, not only about your poetry, but about the way in which you have written about it. I don't know if you wanted to respond to, to that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that, uh, to speak uh, about poetry in connection with language is uh, the very um, common way of uh, speaking of poetry. But for me, uh, um, I'm linguist by uh, training. I studied uh, Old Russian and Czech and the story of language is very, uh, very interesting for me. Uh, but I, I think uh, poetry is um, language, uh, in poetry language, leaves not by language laws, because it is music which organizes language. Uh, language does not, um, say, uh, when we speak, we, 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 we don't have to, to do such thing when uh, we, we write poetry. And it is not language which makes us do it, but a sort of poetry. So I see two parts of, of a poem. It is a language, part of language, and part of, so to say, music. I would respond very warmly to that because I think the the musical dimension, which involves more than one sense, involves the ear and the yes, pulse yes. as well yes. as the mind. I think that that is crucial. Mm. But I think the point I had in mind was more that understanding that, that is how poetry works does affect to some extent how we think about language itself in a culture where very often language is treated in a trivial or instrumental way. Mm. Good poetry pushes us back to think twice about language itself, to slow it down, to make us think about the, mu the music again. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up partly in a community speaking Welsh as well as English. And the classical poetry of my own country of Wales depends very, very heavily on music, on assonance, on um, 
playing with rhythms and stresses. So I, you know, I do. <laughs> yes. And now when everybody writes their libre, it doesn't matter so much, this uh, rhythm, asanas, and so on. No, Don't you no. think so? No. Um, and the idea that you can actually discover truth by, well, by rhythm and music and by the body. I don't know what you think of this, but it seems to me that that is one of the things which, as religious believers, we might want to say about the liturgy itself, that it is a way of encountering the truth in the body. And yes. that in that sense relates to the poetic. seems that, again, we find ourselves often today in a very paradoxical world where we are told again and again that this is a materialist culture, and yet we don't understand matter itself. We don't understand yes, sure. the rhythm or the life of matter itself. Yes, yes. And I think, again, in your writing about modernity and post-modernity, which I found really, really stimulating and enriching. You talk about how there's always the risk of, in the postmodern world, the subject itself becomes an object. You no longer have an encounter, once again, you no longer have a real living exchange of, of action. And postmodernity is, in that sense, a deeply unmaterial, non-incarnate culture. Yes, there are science and science, science of science and so on. That's right, that's right. It's all the infinite exchange of science. Mm -hmm. Well, never the surprise, the, the miracle. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I loved in some of the poetry in this mm -hmm. book, which I'm so delighted. Um, one of the poems from, uh, oh, I guess the third notebook mm -hmm. of prayer, mm -hmm. uh, which in Martha's translation ends, you are Lord of wonders and promises. May all but wonders burn up. I wonder, Martha, do you, do you want to say a word about translating that beautifully mm. compact couplet? <laughs> yes, I like very much Martha's uh, translation. Uh, they sound, for me, uh, uh, very poetic. It, it, for yes. me, I, I translate myself. I translate from uh, uh, some English poets, uh, uh, Italian poets, French poets. And the main thing which I want to um, translate is the, how to say it, not the content, but the gesture, perhaps the gesture, this. Uh... Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. um... And I think that Martha succeeded in it, mm. <laughs> as far as they can understand English. Thank you so much. Um, I... You know, I, I think I and I 
think this is probably true for you both. You are both um, really accomplished translators of poetry in your own right and of other things. But um, I know that for me, I have to find different inner resources to translate different kinds of poems by different people. And, and even, you know, Olga, you have such an amazing range of poetry um, and each of your volume does something different. I mean, I can, I mean, I've, I've spoken with you and read so much of your work. I can see lots of connections across them, but they really have, and I mean, they, you know, I'm never surprised that these poems are yours, but, but they all embody different things, um, different impulses. And um, I was really inspired in translating this by, I mean, this is a silly and obvious thing to say, but by the title, right? The title made me, I mean, I, I want to go through and just translate poem by poem. And I kind of, you know, get all the poems, the originals into files and put them in a column, you know, put them, put an empty column next to them in a Word document and so forth. And I had to keep pulling back and looking at this title, right? Study of Piesni, old songs and thinking, okay, Martha, you know, you're, you're on your computer in your university, um, checking your dictionary from time to time and so forth. But, but what is, what's the spirit of these poems? And um, I think this is always true for me in translation, but for these poems in particular, um, I had to read them over and over and be with them and let them indwell me. And I think that another word that we can find for that thing that you're talking about, maybe um, Olga in in poetry and in translation, is the pulse, right? The, what is the pulse of the poem? What is? And I think your volume, your different volumes have different pulses, and there's a very very strong pulse here. And of course, I mean that rhythmically and metrically, but also there's just there's a spirit behind that pulse. Um, <laughs> and, and I think once I kept coming back to the rootedness of the collection, as I understand it, in your experience, um, your spiritual experience. And I want to say that's not separate from your experience growing up as a child, your experience with your grandmother, especially your grandmother is so present in these verses, even when she's not mentioned. Um, and, and your experience as a, as an ethnographer and, and, you know, you're the kind of ethnographer who you don't just go and record some things and leave. I think there's, you do some dwelling in those spaces and in those cultures. And, um, so I guess for me, I think of it a little bit less technically and a little bit more like, where is that, um, you know, where is, where is the spirit emerging? I mean, I'm, now I keep thinking about Pasternak also, um, Olga, you've written so wonderfully about Pasternak, and I've, I've really learned a lot about him through the incredible work that you've done on him, and I know that he's an important figure for you, and, and um, I, I, I want to keep talking about translation, but I also just want to, want to come back to something that you were thinking through Rowan in terms of what poetry does and what the relationship is between poetry and embodiment. And um, I know, you know, switching from translation to 
to uh, Pasternak and we can come back, but if we, if we want to, but, um, you know, I think I've learned so much from you, Olga, about the way that Pasternak really views the art process and views the process of inspiration and of artistic creation as a harnessing of the life force that that he captures in all things in the world. And for him, Rowan, you were talking about this, the objectification of what rightfully ought to be subjects. And for him, the the world is resonant with life objects as as we call them are resonant with life vibrating with life i love this term vibrant matter that sometimes you you see in certain philosophical and theological contexts mm-hmm. so um i guess maybe coming back around to old songs i that that pulse of the spirit of life um feels so primally present in this volume to me. And that that pulse has something to do with what I think, Olga, is a very significant element in so much of your poetry. It's joy, um, the unexpectedness of joy, which is quite different from mere human happiness. Yes. In terms of a tradition which I know you are familiar with as I am, the um, understanding of Sophia in the world. Um, Sophia is both the the energy connecting things, but also the contemplative and joyful embrace between between creatures and creatures and creatures and God. And that that's certainly something I I sense in. You're working those wonderful Chinese poems, which I particularly love, I must say. I I have that sense of holy wisdom at work in in the way you you set that out. And Martha, your uh, reference to pulses made me think immediately of the great Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain Mm -hmm. and what he writes about what he calls pulsion in French, pulsionly. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the throbbing energy of not just of language but of, of the world itself coming through in, in poetry and when I read that I thought here is a philosopher at last to understand something about poems I would love to hear from you Rowan about your own experience translating um Olga's poetry I know I know um I have I have a book of yours that's quite recent with maybe a hundred poems in it and it contains translations of your own by so many differing poets um with your introductions to them that I really appreciate um and I think maybe there are three or four of Olga's poems in there but I know that you've tried your hand at her uh, translating our poems for years. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that has been like for you and what the journey has been like. Well, um, I think what you said recently, Olga, about um, what the translator seeks to do is very much in my mind here, that um, there's, there's some sense in which you have to find a music in the translation. You can't simply um, 
put down a list of words that more or less correspond to the words in another language, you have to find an energy, a movement, and therefore a music yeah. in what's done. And I, I sometimes find this, if I may be honest, quite difficult when I'm translating from Russian. Russian is very good at rhymes, and English is on the whole. <laughs> the English language is short of rhymes, the Russian language is full of them, and actually Welsh is good with rhymes as well. So mm. very often I find it's, it's impossible to capture that. Um, and of course that particularly comes through in some other of your poems. The ones I translated for this collection um, didn't particularly pose that problem, but they did pose to me the challenge of how do I, how do I find the music, the energy, um, especially in some of those where you use a longer line or long reflective line, how in English you keep the, the movement going. How successfully I've done that, I've no idea, but that was the challenge, and that was what I <laughs> set myself to do and prayed I would be able to do. Um, so I did try my hand at um, a little of the Chinese sequence, but also that wonderful poem about the um, the smiling angel. Mm, the yes. <laughs> I already... <laughs> which I love, I really love. <laughs> I, it's one that I often read if I'm asked to read my translations because um, it, it always enthuses the hearers that, uh, about the angel. Because again, that, that's about joy, about the unexpectedness of joy and how, mm -hmm. in a way, um, any fool can write tragedy, <laughs> but it takes a very particular kind of genius to evoke joy. So yes, not not an easy task translating, but um, but well worth it, and certainly reinforcing all that's been said so far about looking for the music. I wonder if I can make a proposal, a suggestion. Um, Olga, would you be willing to read one of the poems in Russian, uh, and then Martha, then read your translation? I think. We've talked so much about embodiment uh, and, and music that I, I would like to actually hear that yes, right yes. now. If that would be, I, would that be okay? Yes, yes. Uh, I was hoping to hear that, I must say. Three poems to read. And uh, seeing that first Martha um, could say, uh, could uh, read the English version and then I original. It's better for me because you, you can know about what about the poem is. And then I read. That's great. What would you, were there particular ones you were thinking of? Mm, Vidinia. Vidinia. Mm -hmm. That's funny. That was the one I had just opened up. But I'm mm -hmm. <laughs> Vision. When I gaze at you, it's not you I see an aging father in someone else's clothes. He looks like he can't even walk, and still they chase him and they chase him. God Almighty, I think, I myself could die soon. Why am I sorry for every last one? For the beasts, because they're beasts. For the water, because it flows. For the evil man, since he's unhappy. And for myself, because I'm a fool. Vidinia. <laughs> На тебя гляжу, и не тебя я вижу, старого отца в чужой одежде, 
будто идти он не может, а его все гонит и гонит. Господи, думаю, Боже, или умру я скоро, что это каждого жалко? Зверей за то, что они звери, и воду за то, что льется, и злого за его безумие, за его несчастье и себя за свое безумие. And the next uh, Holod Mira. Said uh, mir mirror. Holod Mira. Ah, Holod Mira. Someone will warm the cold of the world. Someone will raise up the dead heart. Someone will take these beasts by the hand like an unruly child. Come with me, I'll show you something the likes of which you've never seen. Холод мира, кто-нибудь согреет. Мертвое сердце, кто-нибудь поднимет. Этих чудищ, кто-нибудь возьмет за руку как ошалевшего ребенка. Пойдем, я покажу тебе такое, чего ты никогда не видел. Hear y'all say a little bit with about your previous encounters with one another, uh, Rowan and Olga. I know that uh, Olga told me you've been in the same room together in London at one point. London, that's right. Um, yes, but mm -hmm. but so I, you know, I I have in mind your your encounters in the same physical spaces, but I also know that you know and appreciate each other's work. And Rowan, you've already talked a little bit about that. Um, but I wondered if you could, uh, and maybe this is particularly for Olga, what aspects of Rowan's work have you particularly appreciated over the years? And so, so I guess it's a, it's a, it's a, um, question about encounters, right? I started out by talking about encounters. Um, how have you encountered each other, whether in rooms or by texts and, what have you taken away with you from those encounters and so far as you can think back on those things? Oh, uh, I ask you to be patient with my English. It's not easy for me to speak and uh, my English does not let me express everything I'd like to, uh, but I'll try. Mm. It is about 10 years that I have a book of Rowan Williams poetry in Moscow, bought it in uh, England, and I am reading the poetry, uh, but uh, first thing that I uh, know about uh, Rowan, uh, it is his uh, mm, uh, spiritual, uh, um, his, his, that he's a, a theologian and he's uh, a friend of our great uh, 
Anthony of Soros, whom I <clears throat> knew well personally. And uh, Anthony uh, Bloom said, uh, t uh, told um, well with love about uh, uh, his Grace Williams. Uh, so, but I know that that it is important to uh, think about uh, the modern theology, not modernist, but modern uh, theology, theology which uh, can speak with uh, a, a vivid language to the modern person, and that I I like uh, very much in 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 the writings. Uh, I was so moved to hear you speak about Vodika Antoni. Mm -hmm. So so important to me for mm -hmm. fifty years or so, really, um, and someone I loved dearly. And I was very privileged to spend time with him not long before he died. So um, the fact that we have that kinship has has mattered a great deal mm -hmm. to me. But I remember the occasion when we were together in London. Um, it was a poetry reading, as I recall. Yes. And I remember meeting you and you, you were kind enough to give me a volume of your poetry, which I, which <laughs> I treasure. And I think part of what I valued was, well, I know that some people writing about you in the English language have said you are a, a metaphysical poet in the 17th century sense which doesn't mean a, a philosophical poet, but someone whose sense of the transformative possibilities of language itself are very much to the fore. And so that's why I read with such delight the intense evocation of the particulars of the world around, this repeated turning back to the themes of surprise and delight in the world and to put that alongside a, another kind of conversation I had recently um, a few months ago I had a, a long uh, conversation an interview with um, Nick Cave the uh, rock singer mm -hmm. a very celebrated figure who's recently come out very, very clearly to speak about his renewed Christian faith. And he speaks about this in terms of what he felt he had to explore after the death of his young son. He lost one of his sons at the age of 15. And he has written about this, but he also said that while some people found experiences of that sort pushed them into despair. For him, this experience pushed him into what he called a resistance. He said he was determined that the world should not be closed and finished, that the world should not be determined by the tragedy of his son's death, that his son's life should not be determined by tragedy, and that that was what pushed him back into faith. 
so that he too, a very, in many ways, a very bleak and difficult songwriter, he too is writing now about joy. The last conversation I had with him um, was in fact about the liturgy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, very strange things happen. My son, who is uh, in his 20s and has been a great admirer of Nick Cave for many years, said that the one thing he would never have expected 10 years ago to see a photograph of his father with Nick Cave talking about <laughs> the origin. <laughs> but it's, it seemed to me that, for example, in that poem about the smiling angel, part of what you are constantly doing is a quiet protest. The world should not be allowed to define itself by loss. The world must define itself in relation to joy. And that reminds me of things, again, that you've said, um, writing about Dostoevsky and others, that um, the problem of the good, the problem of joy, should worry us just as much as the problem of evil. Uh, I, I had not such experience uh, to go to the faith um, when um, after the great grief or tragedy. It was, I suppose, uh, always with me since my childhood because my grandmother told me uh, the, the first prayers and so on. But it was time when uh, the religion in the USSR was persecuted. So when you went to the church, you met another world, absolutely another world than the normal Soviet world. There were another people, uh, another sort of people. It was a, lit a liturgy which I loved since childhood. I, I even made the um, dictionary uh, of liturgical language, Church Slavonic Russian uh, dictionary of the same words, which have uh, different um, uh, to say, uh, which uh, uh, perhaps uh, mir in Church Slavonic and mir in Russian is not the same. So I tried to uh, demonstrate the difference between two languages. Uh, that, that's a particularly significant word, of course. Um, I'd love to hear you say a little more about the difference between Mir in Czech and in modern Russian. In, in the Czech Slavonic world, you can feel the Greek origin always, and it is full of the Greek thought of the world. And uh, which is at, at the same time in Russian, it, it means um, <clears throat> uh, such a um, how to say silence in in your soul. That is mir, and mir is a, a cosmic uh, unity of everything. But uh, it it can't be thought uh, not beautiful. Mir is beautiful. That is, and when we speak it in uh, modern Russian, mir it it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, 
doesn't signify so much. Mm. That's that's very helpful indeed, I find, because... Oh, and yes, Mir is also the community of people. Yes, the community yes. of people is called Mir. And mm. when in the liturgy they, they say, Mirem Gospodu Pamolimsa, we're praying... Mm. Mm, we are praying in uh, peace or in yes. community. Yes. Uh, it is possible to understand so and so. Yes, yes. All together and in, in, uh, in silence. Mm. Yes. And I think that that particular use in that prayer, in peace, let us pray to the Lord, a reminder that every prayer comes from a level of being which is not just individual, but part, as you say, of that cosmic interaction and harmony. And when we pray as a community, when we pray in the liturgy, then that is the level from which we pray, not just a lot of people making individual petitions to the divine, but the the world itself gathering up its its reflection, its love, its offering to God. So yes, as I see what you mean. I find that very, very helpful. Sadly, of course, most Westerners now hear that word in connection with Ruthi Mir. Ah, the, yes. The ideology, <laughs> that, which is the exact <laughs> antithesis of what you're talking <laughs> it about. Is a scandal. It is awful. The idea of this Russian world, it is awful. But this, <laughs> this is obviously a a matter of pain and burden for you at the moment, the, the way in which a particular kind of Russian identity has been yes. revived and is being pursued in, in the world. But I think it's, it's an experience which many, many nations confront now as so many countries are taken over by a kind of new barbarity. Um, I Sure, Martha and Greg won't mind if I say I hear American friends talking about sense of being exiled internally from oh. their own country in many ways. And it's not entirely unfamiliar in the United Kingdom either. They're <laughs> not quite so dramatic. Oh. But it means that, for me, that the poetic, poetic vision is more than ever important for the, the well-being of the communities we belong to. Partly because, going back to my opening question, um, good poetry makes what is near at hand feel distant and strange, and what is distant come close. And it's yes. not that these distances don't matter or don't exist, but you have to constantly be working with a change of focus there to, to live and to understand. And so much of our contemporary tyranny and barbarity is about saying all that matters is what is familiar, but nobody try to make it strange or difficult. That's it. Uh, what is difficult for me is that to write poem for me, and, and not uh, 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 Mandelstam also see thought like that, that poet and musician and the artist, when he is writing, when he is inspired, must feel himself innocent. You need some sort of innocence 
uh, without it, you can't uh, write anything which uh, was it. And now we, uh, we we can't feel ourselves innocent, and that's awful. We are responsible, even if I hate all all the kind of uh, um, violence and everything. But I feel involved in this because it is my country, my state, which is doing that. Yes, yes, yes and that is a profound tragedy. I think. And I wonder, I, I sometimes think that part of part of the poetic calling and part of what is necessary for poetry is also to be able to say, I have not been bought by anyone. I do not belong to a, a party. I'm, I'm not being paid for my words. <laughs> yes. And that at least... At least at you least. can say. <laughs> at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I just, I think that's wonderful that you say that, Rowan. And and I, I mean that's that's clearly so true about about you, Olga. Um, but but um, I'm struck by that comment in particular because I've been working on translating a really wonderful essay by you, Olga, your, your essay on Anna Barkova. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you actually make that point about her, that uh, you're talking about the lack of attention to the parallel histories that were taking place in the, in the Soviet Union, official culture and unofficial culture, and the, uh, particularly the literary histories that have not been untangled from that time and you make a distinction between those who were able to find a comfortable living for themselves by becoming part of the union of Soviet writers and so forth um, and those who made lives very difficult for themselves by refusing to find those sinecures and that's a comment that you make about Anna Barkova is that she was one of these poets who was not not hired not not um not employed she was a free poet but of course that cost her a tremendous amount and one of the things that cost her was really being known even by someone such as yourself who lived in moscow you know and and took an interest in poetry early on and knew many of the wonderful poets of the late soviet period yes I wanted to think about, um, you know, following on from some of these comments on the current situation and what it means for so many people in so many different places. And I think this comes back to comments that you've uh, raised a couple of times, Rowan. Um, how does poetry become a space of encounter in these suffocating moments? What is it about poetry that, you know, as, as you were putting it, Rowan, brings the distant close and makes the close strange? Um, but also, you know, what is it about poetry that allows um, 
opens up space for for connection with with uh with the universe that 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 um finds that sibsavina right that connects us to that core i wonder if you can talk a little bit more about poetry as encounter in dark places olga <laughs> yes it isn't too easy and what i i love in poetry uh, that uh, it doesn't speak too openly it speaks and not speaks and so i don't like to speak too i have to say directly in prose and uh, the most uh, important most secret things uh, they are not pronounced you can feel it perhaps feel from the sounds uh, from the rhythms energy and not from the words words by words so um, it's difficult for me to speak about it You know, in Zabolotsky, a poet whom I love very much, uh, Nikolai Zabolotsky, uh, there is a line, Tsilamudrinny Bezny Stiha. You can translate it in the virgin abyss uh, of, uh, of the line. Tsilamudrinny Bezny Stiha. And this virgin um, abyss, or, uh, it is for me poetry. It does not speak too much. Or even enough, it doesn't speak enough. I think that that's absolutely right, isn't it? That if you could say things in other ways, the poetry would not be necessary. So yes. the must say there's an I I've always thought of that wonderful story about T. S. Eliot, whom we both love, um, when somebody asked him what a line of his poetry meant. And he simply repeated the line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not only poetry, when Leo Tolstoy was asked, uh, what uh, did you like to say in your Anna Karenina, the great novel? And he said, you need to read it from the first line to the last. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. But as as you were speaking, Martha, one thing that came to my mind was, of course, that you know, I, I hesitate to be too theological here, but it does seem to me that one of the things that keeps us going as Christian poets is the sense that the word incarnate, Christ, makes the strange God familiar and familiar humanity strange. The God who seemed to be distant is now nearer than we could imagine. The humanity we thought we understood opens out onto infinite transfiguration, and somehow that says something about the the world, the, the sacrament of the world, as it is. I think in one of the poems, Olga, you use the word taina, um, and Martha, you translated it quite properly as mystery, but I thought it's also a sacrament. <laughs> yes, yes, sure. Relating to what some theologians speak about in terms of Christ as the sacrament of all sacraments. But that doesn't sound getting too theological here, but it's one of those things which <laughs> yes. weaves in with how I think about poetry when I think about it. And of course, as I'm sure you'd agree, Olga, 
you don't spend too much time, ideally, thinking too much about poetry, because you can you can put off writing poems for a very long time. No, I like to think about poetry, but not my own. I like oh, to, yes, yes, to think exactly, about exactly. Pushkin's poetry, yes. Dante's poetry, but not mine. Yes. I don't like to understand everything I'm uh, talking about. It, it is important for me not to understand everything. Yes, so another story about um, W.H. Auden and a conversation he had with Stephen Spender when Stephen Spender was a young man. And Spender said to Auden, I want to be a poet. And Auden said, does that mean you don't want to write poetry? <laughs> yes. See, I think he quite rightly was very suspicious of being a poet with all that goes with that, rather than responding to the the impulse. And here we are with pulses again, actually to write, to to engage. Never mind the, the self images. Never mind the the theories. Just to write. Martha, you're, you're an experienced translator. Um, do you write poetry yourself, or do you find it has to go through the filter of mother imagination? Because, you know, all the translations are deeply alert to these things we've been talking about, the, the rhythm and the music. Um, thank you. It's, it's, you're it's, not on oath, so you don't have to answer. <laughs> I, I, um, I used to, um, and now I'm married to a poet, so I haven't written poetry for a long time. But I actually, um, I I write I write songs, um, and um, so I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to spend more time with this particular volume, is that they do have a, a song like quality, um, and and of course, like to me, and this is true in a lot of folk music. Um, one of the things I love about uh, songs and folk songs in particular is that there's meter, but you can really fit in as many or as few words as you want to. So there's a freedom with the meter. And, and so I think that's part of my connection to this, this collection. Yes, I think we could perhaps draw too quick a line between poetry and song. Because you know there are some kinds of poets who are rather snobbish about mere songwriters, but I mentioned Nick Cave earlier. It's perfectly clear to me that what he writes is poetry, and I think he thinks it is too. And many of the greatest songwriters of the last hundred years have clearly been serious poets, in a, in a very different idiom, but still serious poets, and many so-called serious poets might have been better if they tried to write some songs. <laughs> well, and I think there's something about um, songs, um, music that I notice, not just for myself, but actually also for my students I teach at a university, um, that Students are intimidated by poetry and they're not intimidated by songs. Mm. And so, so sometimes I just play a song for them in class when I'm trying to teach them 
that they can read poetry. I'm not trying to teach them how to read poetry. I'm trying to teach them that they can already read it and just to discover their ability to read it and discover that they can actually capture so much when they're reading that they don't think they can capture because they don't know all the right terms and so forth. But so sometimes I'll play a song for them. And I think there's, again, that's something I really love about this cycle is that there's a humility to the song. I think that we think of songs as just workaday things that we just, we carry along with, we carry them along with us in our head. And sometimes they pop up and they're annoying to us. You know, we kind of, it's, I think song is much easier to dismiss because it's so much more obviously woven into our lives and um, so, you know, in that sense, too, in terms of what you're saying, Rowan, about dismissing song, I appreciate that there's a quality of that down-to-earthness in all of your poetry, Olga, but but it's really heightened, I think, in this particular connection, collection. Yes. Yes, I, I certainly sense that in this, this collection. And I, I like that term humility, Martha. I think that's, that's a really illuminating thing about song. Humility and also a song is, is perhaps more obviously an invitation than a poem is because you're supposed to sing it. So <laughs> another voice is invited. Mm-hmm. And that means that as you write, you try not to let your own voice draw attention to itself. I I was asked a couple of years ago to write a hymn for a particular commemoration in a church in London, and I found it so difficult, and I think the result is completely unsuccessful. <laughs> they, were, they were kind enough not to send it back, covered with red ink, but I felt, no, I haven't really got it. I, I haven't. Well, rather like St. Augustine saying, I was not humble enough to know the humble God <laughs> to not get inside that, that style that was necessary. Well, that, that, oh, I'm sorry. No, just to say one of the things I, I so love about a poet like George Herbert is mm. that he, he is an example of the semo humilis in Latin, the, the, the humble style. He will write very workaday rhythms, very sophisticated poems as well, but often simple workaday things with concrete um, everyday metaphors and short syllables. <laughs> and the result is, is overwhelming. Um, in more recent poetry, I suppose, again, one of the things I admire about some of W.H. Warden is that he's not afraid to to go down that route, especially in his early poetry. And there aren't very many who do it. One of the poets I very much love among recent English writers, and I don't know if uh, you, Martha, or you, Olga, have heard of him, is Charles Causley. He was a school teacher in Cornwall, west of England, and he spent his entire life teaching elementary school children. And he wrote poems for them, and he wrote poems for adults as well. And nearly all his poems are in very simple, rhyming ballad meter. Mm-hmm. They are staggering. They are just wonderful poems. And the humility is, is there in every line. I've never heard the name. And I uh, write poems for my cat. 
Mm-hmm. Not only children, but cats. <laughs> I hope they're appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, he asked the new one each time. Two, three times he's ready to listen. But then he uh, let me know that he needs a new one. Um, Olga, I wonder if you could tell us, uh, we were talking a minute ago about um, thinking about poetry and thinking or not thinking about one's own poetry, but but as you said, you do think about poetry a lot, um, and you've written so wonderfully about so many other people's poetry. Um, can you tell us what you're, what you're reading right now, or what... what um, poetry or poetic works you're thinking about right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I can say that the main figure for me for, I don't know, 30 years is Dante Alighieri. I wrote about him. I translated six of his uh, cantos. Uh, and uh, I go on. Are there particular resources that you find in him at this moment? Uh, no, I never um, translated uh, anything from uh, his Inferno. I didn't like Inferno. Hell. What I, I don't like uh, read about hell, about the hell. Uh, and uh, um, last year, I translated two songs from the hell, Dante's hell, because I personally, I have no, um, to say, um, no tool to express uh, these uh, hellish uh, things, and I find them uh, in Dante's. Uh, I always prefer paradise uh, and uh, uh, is it in English uh, the second the second cantica purgatorio purgatorio uh, in uh, in English purgatory. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We're coming up here on an hour, and I'm very grateful to all of you. Um, so I wonder, you know, as we as we come to a close, I know that uh, Rowan's in Rome at the moment uh, and making time for us in his busy schedule. I want to be, you know, acknowledge that uh, and be sensitive to that. So are there, are there thoughts or questions that uh, have not been expressed yet that that are on anyone's mind, anything that you would like to share, uh, Olga, with an English-speaking audience, uh, or anything, that, any last question or comment that you have, Martha or Rowan? I think I could only say that I would love to have another hour or two to talk about Pasternak. Because <laughs> I've, I've recently been reading Pasternak again, and I would so love the chance to talk through the importance of that novel for today. 
Yes. And what I like very much is uh, his letters. Yes. 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 Last letters. Uh, it is a, a great thing. Well, I would just like to say, um, Olga, that uh, we're very, very grateful to have the opportunity to publish this book and to try to uh, share with a, a, a broader English-speaking public uh, your work. We w want to work to make your own vision, your own achievement better known in the world of English speakers. And uh, the name of our publishing company, Slant, is a way of – it's – similar to some of the points we've been saying about mystery mm. and not, not speaking directly. Mm. We have, and even with hymns and songs, we think of Emily Dickinson mm. who says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Yes. Success in circuit lies. So yes, yes, that's yes. very much uh, our desire to rediscover in literary language the possibility of mystery, uh, of understanding what Solzhenitsyn talked about, of the mystery of the human heart, that good and evil goes through each human heart. It's not about good guys and bad guys. It's about uh, our responsibility of all for all. Uh, as Father Zosima says in Brothers Karamazov, so we're really working hard to publish books that embody this vision and we're so grateful to you for um sh allowing us to share it with a, a, a broader audience <laughs> thank you so much so hopefully this will not be the last book that we mm -hmm. that we do together so we can keep talking martha and and uh, and and I and 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 uh, see what conversations lead to more encounter, more more uh, m m more a, a sense of uh, the, it being interlocutors with one another. Mm -hmm, yes, Martha, thank you for for your excellent translation for being a connector of people. It's it's a it's a vocation that's important. Um, so did you want to have any, share any final thoughts? Um, you know, I, I just wanted to say, um, uh, thanks to our shared friend, uh, in part, thanks to our shared friend, our mutual friend, Olga Alyuknovikov, um, who's done so much to highlight Olga's work, um, in the world. Um, you know, I've been translating a lot of, um, all this poetry and I'm, I'm really happy that, um, the first thing of, of Olga's that, that is coming out from my direction, um, in, in the States is this particular volume. Um, and I think the moment is a good time for this volume. Um, I, uh, you know, was thinking, Rowan, when you were talking about your conversation with Nick Cave, um, how recently I was going back through this collection, Olga, and I realized so many poems are about death. And that coexists with the joy that, that you were talking about so beautifully, Rowan. 
Um, so, so I think this is a collection that is, that takes a loving and also unvarnished look at the world. And I think that's exactly the kind of poetry that we need right now. So I'm really grateful to you, Greg, for making this happen. And it's really just, okay, it's so wonderful to see you. And I know we could, we could Zoom more regularly and we don't, because I, I, I tend to be an in-person kind of person, but mm-hmm. I'm really happy for this encounter to take place um, in whatever way it can across, uh, I guess, three different countries. So thank you so much for being here, Rowan. It's really a delight to see you. And Rowan, any last words? Only to say it's been the most enormous privilege, Olga, to be able to share this time with you as a deep admirer of your poetry and your prose. And I've never opened a page of yours without feeling enriched by it. So it's just wonderful to have the opportunity to say thank you for that. And thank you also to Martha for this work and to Greg for making making this this possible. It's been a wonderful encounter and may there be many more. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Uh, Spasiba, is that how you say it? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we will... uh, it will take a, a few days, maybe a week or two, to edit this event into a form that will go online, and people will be able to listen to it as an audio, but they will also be able to see it, and I will let you know and Martha know when it's available, and we just are so excited that the book is coming out next week, and we we were grateful to you for your um, for the work that you've created and the witness that you give to the world. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking for uh, have the book in my hands. Beautiful. Well, thanks all. I will. I will sign off now and let you go. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Good night, Olga. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Old Songs is available for purchase in cloth-bound, paperback, and ebook editions through all major online retailers. If you go to the book's webpage at slantbooks.org, you can find links to several of those outlets, including bookshop.org. The best way to keep up with all the news about our recent and forthcoming releases is to visit our website and sign up for Slantwise, our almost monthly e-newsletter. Just go right to the bottom of any web page and you'll find where you can subscribe to Slantwise. You can also follow us on social media. Next month, we will publish Searching for Home, the final posthumous poetry collection from the great writer and critic Robert Pack. That too will involve a special presentation as we will be joined by poets Paul Mariani, Richard Jackson, and Jane Charles who will read from the collection and share their memories and impressions of a literary legend. Details about the book are already up on our website. Remember that you can now subscribe to Slantcast through all the major podcast outlets, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Audible, and many others. Please note that none of this would be possible without your tax-deductible donations, you ensure that labor-intensive and labor of love 
books like old songs can be published and reach a world of readers hungry for literary craft and enduring themes. Books that undertake research into the human heart. To support our work, just go to slantbooks.org and click on donate. Finally, remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time.